Okay. How's everybody today? I'd like to welcome you. Um, I wanted to uh, ask Gerald uh, and the elders if I could uh, share with you guys sometime in the future, uh, because I wanted to thank my my, my church family for all the support you've given uh, me and my family since um, we kind of changed the course of our lives, and I went to went to uh, school to become a counselor, a biblical counselor. Um, you've prayed for us. You've encouraged us. Uh, people asked you know, throughout the whole three, four years, asked how it was going. Um, y'all prayed for me when I was uh, studying for the exam, and I really appreciate that, and thankfully I passed. Um, you can pray. Now I've, I've turned in my uh, application to get a counseling license, and um, I hope I got everything uh, turned in. Um, the application instructions, I believe, were put together by a team of monkeys. And so I'm not real sure if that's just a test for patients, uh, for counselors, or, or what. But this year, you know, um, as we've been going through COVID, and then as we changed from Ephesians, looking at Ephesians, to looking at the Psalms of Lament, and then Psalm 119, over and over again, we're hearing the, the subject of suffering, and we're seeing how God works in suffering. And so that's kind of the, the other thing I wanted to do is I wanted to share that that is one of the most important things uh, that are a part of kind of my philosophy of, of counseling is that um, I want to whet your appetite to not just hear about uh, suffering, but to really, uh, or, or a theology of suffering, but really to, to reach out, to, to work, to establish your own understanding of what God's Word says about suffering and how God uses it. A thorough uh, theology of suffering is to understand that affliction and suffering and even incompleteness or deficiency is gracious discipline, and it's not punishment. Even, I think, when, uh, as unbelievers, we're convicted of our sins, God ultimately is, is pushing us towards discipleship, becoming disciples of Christ. It's a way he reaches out to us. And I just want to kind of whet your appetite for that, that you should start today. Don't wait until, like, you're suffering from something, Okay. Uh, because you can prepare by understanding the place of suffering. Um, and so a good place to start with that is what Gerald read today. And I'm going to just read back over the last part of what he read uh, in First Peter. And the main question we want to think about as we, as we go through is how does suffering fit in God's plan for my life and for all of humanity? So in 1 Peter 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold which perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our suffering has a purpose. God purposes uh, our suffering. 
We've walked through the Psalms, as I've said, and we've seen God, uh, that he cares that we suffer, but he also uses that suffering. It's not wasted time. It's not wasted effort. It's not wasted hurt. But he uses that to transform our lives. Um, if I could give you one sentence that I'd like for you to kind of hold on to today, maybe remember um, and test out, is that since God is good and wise and loves his people, his plans for our lives can be trusted as flawless and safe, even when they include discomfort and discomfort all the way up to death. Or, or as, as Peter said again in his first letter in 419, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God employs suffering to drive us to himself and to mature our faith. And I'm going to, I like to, to say trust. Uh, in our culture today, faith has become a magic word. You know, it's like a magic thing you do or it's something that you jump into um, like a leap of faith. And that's not what faith, faith is. Faith is trusting what God has said and shown us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that he is going to do in us. But I want to warn you, there's, we can't cover this all today. We can't um, look at the subject of suffering and cover all the nuances and the but-ifs in one sitting, Okay? So I want to I issue six warnings here. Um, the first one is, please do not hear me say that suffering is pleasant or easy. I'm not telling you that our suffering earns God's favor. And number three, understand that punishment and discipline may look alike, but they're not alike. Number four, I'm not asking you to pursue suffering. Don't go around when you get a... Rock in your shoe and keep it there so you can suffer. Um, I'm not excusing your sin that could bring on suffering. And, and most importantly, I'm not saying that other people who sin against you is good. I'm not excusing their sin. So please don't hear me say that. And the number six, what we should do every time we hear God's word taught, I want you to be like the Bereans. I want you to go to the scriptures yourself. And I want you to try to test, I want you to test it out. And if what I say is, doesn't line up, I want you to um, try to forget it. So last week, Pastor Jonathan reminded us that God and his word are eternally sufficient. So one aspect of God's word that strengthens my faith in the inspiration, the inerrancy, and the sufficiency of scripture is different plot lines of the Bible and how those plot lines are woven together like into a tapestry or a a beautiful rug. Um, God uses those plot lines to convey the message of salvation to his people. So if you think about it, the gospel is pretty simple, okay? It's simple to understand. But the more you read the Bible, the more you study scripture, the more you think about how the gospel fits into our lives as individuals and as a community, we understand that it's a lot more comprehensive than simple. So we can grow in our understanding um, of the gospel. And if, if you don't believe me, 
it's been 2,000 years, and I will, I'd like for you to try to count the books people have written, the good books that people have written on the gospel, because they're taking it apart and they're applying it to our lives. Um, it encompasses our whole life. The gospel touches every part of us. It, you know, we think about gospel as cha- the gospel is changing our destination when we die, but the gospel changes us every part of our life starting when you're saved. So the different plot lines uh, can be found interlaced through all the five themes of Scripture. You know, we've talked about the, the story of the Bible containing creation, fall, restoration, and I add glorification because that's very important when it comes to counseling, is glorification gives us a hope, it points to a hope that... Um, allows us to walk through many struggling things or go through the hard part of changing, uh, you know, our lives. So what are some examples of these plot lines? Like a shepherd and his sheep. You you see that throughout Scripture? There there are different stories that have shepherd and sheep in them. They're father and children. Both God is the father and us as his children. And stories about fathers and children. Uh, throughout Scripture, blood sacrifices, Cain and Abel, up to Jesus, and then even in the epistles. Marriage, so Israel is called the bride of God. Um, we are the bride of Christ. That's carried all the way through in the book of Revelation. We talk about the, the wedding supper of the Lamb, right? Gardens. Think about the place of gardens in Scripture and what it tells us about the gospel. We start in a garden. We end in a garden, a new and better garden. And then what I want to talk about today is what what I call the wilderness paradox. So think about a paradox. A paradox is something that looks like it's contradictory, but it's not, right? Right. So God uses suffering to rescue, to restore, and to glorify his people. And that sounds like a contradiction. Why would God, a good God, who is wise and loving, take me through suffering in order to rescue me? That doesn't sound like rescue, right? But God designed the world and humanity uh, so that our suffering would reveal weaknesses in us. First of all, it reveals our need, right? So we talk about the law convicting us of our sin. It's like a corral, right? It corrals us so that we realize, oh, no, I can't do this by myself. I need Jesus to save me. It goes on throughout our life, um, God using afflictions, pain, suffering, in our lives. He uses other things. Again, this is one aspect. We're looking at one plot line. The other plot lines are there too, okay? But we're focusing on this one today. So we see this plot line of the wilderness paradox in a couple of places in Scripture. Abraham, Abram is in Ur. He's probably comfortable. God calls him to leave Ur. The wealth of his family, the support of his family, Maybe even the support of his gods. 
and leave that place and go to somewhere he has never heard of, never seen. And I think if you look at the map, it doesn't look like a fun trip. But he received a land that he had never heard of. Moses was driven out of Egypt for 40 years, lived on the backside of the desert for 40 years. Okay, that's a long time. He's old. And um, then he could become the deliverer. Jesus um, suffered. He, came, he left heaven where he was king of kings, lord of lords, recognized, glorified, and known among the angels and worshipped. And he came as a baby, helpless baby, naked baby, okay, who depended on someone to feed him and care for him and grow him in maturity. And then he was exposed to all the suffering of seeing people he loved sinning and then earning, you know, sort of going through their suffering. Um, And then he suffered for us on the cross. And he did that. So that suffering, it's a paradox that it actually brings about not only a gift for us, but the greatest gift that we can receive, and that is salvation, a relationship with with God through Christ. Think about the the, um, parable of the prodigal son. You know, he was trusting in his wealth, right, when he left. And what happened to his wealth? It was eaten up. And he was suffering in a pig pen. And he comes back. So there's suffering. That suffering gave him the idea that, hey, um, this is not what I should be trusting in. I'm going back to daddy. Paul's thorn in the flesh, same way. So... Think about yourself. In what weak ways do you find your security? And I'm not just talking about unbelievers here. I'm I'm mainly talking about believers. Are there weak things in your life that you trust in? Like Abraham, he trusted in his comfortable life. Could you be trusting in that? Could you trust in your education like Moses? Moses was educated as a royal person in in Egypt? Do you trust in the way things uh, get done in this world? You know, this is just the way the world works, and we've got to uh, do it that way. What about your finances? Do you trust in your finances, in your uh, retirement fund? Um, or what about your special talents, things that you've even been called to by God? Those things are weak if they, if they become what we rest our peace in. Now, as we look at Hosea chapter 2, I believe it is a, a good example of how God uses a wilderness to, to work in his people's lives, to bring them to himself and then also to mature them uh, as his people. So in these chapters, we're going to see uh, God shows us the weakness 
of what his people were trusting in and his goodness and his wisdom, which are found in his plan. So we can y'all can go ahead and turn to chapter chapter two. But first, as you're doing that, I just kind of want to talk about uh, the background. Um, Let's think about humans. Even before the fall, we were created not to be independent, but we were created to be dependent on God. The story of Adam and Eve, Eve being created from from uh, the rib of Adam is a is a picture of our need for each other. We need. We are not independent. You know, uh, science says that. Uh, calls humanity uh, Homo sapien, which is man the wise. Uh, some people call it call us uh, Homo religioso or whatever. I don't know the exact word for it, but that is man the religious, and we are religious. We are created to want God. I think we can also call ourselves man the dependent. And so, because of that, now that we're fallen, our dependence is always going to be attached to something. It's going to, we're broken, and we refuse to trust in God and his love, his wisdom, his goodness. Instead, we put our trust in ourselves or in something else that's not God. It's like we have this trusting muscle, this truster. And the truster is broken, and it cannot, and it will not attach itself to God. And even after God comes in and by spirit and gives us new life in Christ, he causes us to be born again. We are trusting in him. We begin to trust in God. Right. Do you remember when you were first saved and it was like, that's all you could think about? I mean, I know. I was irritating. So I've heard. And. um Maybe I'm still irritating. But even afterwards, it's hard to break free of those old habits of trust, isn't it? So we're transformed. We, be, we begin to put our trust in God in, through Christ. But there's still those, the way we learned all those habits in the past. Are there things that you've learned like from your family or from our community or from our way of life? that focus us to, to run to other things in, 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 instead of God? I think it's these lesser things that remain in us, what I think Scripture calls indwelling sin. It's our old trust, and it's the source of the ongoing actions of our sin, our broken relationships. I have, uh, in counseling, uh, one of the one of the common things that happens in marriage counseling, in, in my experience, is that one spouse says, I want to make sure I do everything right. And then he or she will never leave me. Well, you know, you can do everything right. And your spouse gets mad at you. Because what you thought was right was actually not right or what you did that was right your spouse didn't think was right. So it's, it's, it, it's trusting. That, I mean, you want to do right in your marriage. I mean, come on. I'm not, 
not leading us that, that way. But what I'm saying is, if we trust in that, then we're trusting in something other than God. And I'm going to tell you that in, in what I've learned about marriage counseling is, I want to get them to fight in front of me. I want them to fight in front of me. Because that's where change happens. It happens when the real subject is happening right at that same time. Not when you go home, this is what you should do. So it, it exposes the areas of our need. So Mark Roker, who is a Baptist theologian, uh, he describes the first three chapters of, of, of Hosea, is that Hosea's marriage to Gomer is a reflection of the relationship between God and Israel. In chapter 1, uh, God commands Hosea to marry a, the harlot Gomer. The purpose of this union is to demonstrate both the waywardness of God's people and the faithfulness and contra-conditional love God has for them. You know, we call it unconditional love. Maybe we should call it contraditional love because it's contra to whatever we do, right? God doesn't leave us or forsake us because we sin. In fact, we sinned and he came after us. And that sin is a rebellion against him. So I want to be clear about this as we think about chapter 2 of Hosea. I believe Hosea is, this is an actual historical marriage. But it also serves as a parable for us. And in a parable, you want to think of who represents who and what represents what, right? So here we are. Hosea represents God. Gomer symbolizes you and me. Not just you and me if we're unbelievers, but you and me as believers as well. By the end of chapter 1, Hosea and Gomer have married And they have produced three children whose names are a pronouncement of judgment on his people. The last two, no mercy. How would you like to be called no mercy? Or not my people. The first one, uh, Jezreel, is appointing to the, the destruction that is to come. But Jezreel has another meaning that we'll see later, uh, if I don't forget to mention it, um, that is... It means God sows, God takes care of us. So I want to I ask you two questions. The first is, what fruit might your idol or my idol produce in, in yourself or in our society or in our church? And then the, there's the counselor's question. How do you feel about being Gomer? How does that make you feel? Those are important things to think about. I mean, nobody wants to. It's hard to think about how you feel, but it's a good idea to express it. Journal it, talk to somebody about it. Because, first of all, you can can say how you feel, and when you say it out loud, you realize that it's not true, right? Have you ever had a good idea? You had just a wonderful idea, and you went and told somebody about it? And as you were telling them, you were thinking, Dang, that is not going to (laughs) work. Examining your feelings as well helps you see 
what's important in your life. So chapter three, chapter two, I'm sorry, we're going to walk through it together, read it together, is going to show us three things. God's judgment of Gomer, his, his people Israel, you and me. God's reason for leaving Hosea, which I think is, is one of the key points, um, and I think we can think about it and how it reflects on us. And then God's work to redeem and transform Gomer, or you and me. So let's get started. Chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 4. Say to your brothers, you are my people. Say to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring before her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born. Helpless. Think about being stripped naked like the day you were born and make her like a wilderness. Make her like a parched land. Kill her with thirst. Upon her children, I will have no mercy because they are the children of whoredom. God lists Gomer's sins and the judgments against her. But listen, did you hear something else in those judgments? Did you hear God say, plead? Why was he pleading? God's desire is for her to return, for her to repent. Remember that in this story, uh, it's about us, believers and and non-believers alike. God is calling us to himself when he convicts us of sin. He brings suffering into our lives to get our attention In verse 5, we learn of Gomer's motive for leaving Hosea. For their mother has played the whore. She has conceived them, and she who has conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who gave me bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. You would think that Gomer, who may have been a harlot prior to marriage, there's some debate on that, but that's what it seems to me uh, to be, Uh, maybe a temple prostitute, Um, but you would think she would rather be the spouse of, of one person, of Hosea, than to be the sex toy of rich, wealthy, or temple goers, right? You would think that that's what she would want. But it's amazing how God has made our brains to learn by habit. To, I mean, we've all seen things that we need to do to change our lives. Like be healthier in some certain way. But the change is like, man, that sounds too painful. You mean I've got to eat less? No more ice cream for a while? Those kind of things um, show that we have have these habits that we've learned. So think about habits. Habituation is something that we do as people. How many of you in here know how to tie your shoe? Okay, this morning, if you tied your shoe or the last time you tied your shoe, did you do the little rabbit thing? Did you say that? 
Did you think about tying your shoe? No. Have you ever driven home from, from work and you meant to go to Walmart on the way and you drive up in the driveway and you're like, oh my goodness, I totally forgot. Because you're, that, that drive is a habit. And God did that for us. He gave us this habituation uh, ability so that we could be productive people. Just think about if you had to remember how to do something every time you did it. It would be difficult. But that works because we're in a broken body, a broken spirit, a broken world. It works in reverse as well. It works to the bad as well as, as to the good. So could it be that her life before Hosea, Gomer's life before Hosea, was comfortable and safe? She enjoyed the benefits of her lovers, the opulence of her trade. Maybe she also used her lover's provision. And think about it. What's it like to chase three toddlers around? You know, it's, it's difficult work. And sometimes, you know, you're, you're at a quandary of what to do to discipline your children or to love your children. Um, it might be attractive not to have to go through that. Maybe she, what was happening was that she was so used to her lover's provision that she couldn't transfer her trust to Hosea for, for, for provision, for protection and love. And, and, and can't we kind of see that in ourselves? So unbeliever, person who has not received Christ, could it be that you consider the maker of all things as too weak to provide life for you? Could you think he is too nearsighted to plan your life out for you? To my brothers and sisters in Christ, I ask these questions. Are there areas of your life where you don't trust God's good plan? God has wedded us to Christ. He has given us new life and made us new creatures. The old has passed away. The new has come. Our broken truster has been given power to find security in Christ. But like me... Do you find yourself holding on to your old habits? I mean, subconsciously, because they're, 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 they're like habits, right? It's not like you're consciously doing those things. You're not consciously saying, Lord, I reject your provision. I'm going over to Roxborough Savings and cash a check. That, that's, that's not what we say. But it's how we feel. It's how we act or react. But we can trust in things like anxiety. We can trust in our anger and our relationships. We can trust in substances. We can trust in being good or doing the right thing. But those things, some of those things are obviously not healthy, but some are healthy. So let's read verses uh, 6 through 13. God's going to appoint and sh- appoint suffering to show Gomer that salvation and provision are found in him alone. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and build a wall against her so she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, 
but shall not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it is better for me then than now. And he did. And she did not know that it was I who gave her grain, the grain, the wine and the oil who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So even the opulence, even the comfort, even the security, the things she received from her lovers ultimately came from God. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. And I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. I will put an end to her myrrh, her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I, I will make them a forest and the beasts. Or the field shall devour them. Have you ever seen a, like a, an old tobacco field? You've gone through the woods and there's trees everywhere, but there's the, 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 the bumps of the, uh, the rows. That's the picture there. So this fruitful field has become a place where there are just trees growing. It's not producing anything other than shade and oxygen. And I will punish her for her feast, feast days of the bales. When she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. So we think about that as a picture. I like to. I don't know if this is. um, I'm I'm sure other people do this when I read. I I, kind of see what I'm reading. Um, So I see this picture. Um, God has there's a path to her lovers. A path to the to her old life, and he grows up thorns in the way and builds a wall, so she can't get to it. She can't get to her lovers. She wants to get back to them, but she can't. So, have you ever been in a place in your life where you want to get back to the old things that you trust in, and God cuts it off? Think about the mercy of that. He's not letting you get to the weaker thing, but he's leaving open the path to him. And she said, back in verse 7, I will go and return to my first husband, for it is better for me then than now. So like the prodigal son, she says, my only hope is to return to her husband, to return to God. So again, do you see this process working in your life? Here we see one purpose for our suffering. We pursue the old habits where we have learned uh, to gain peace or at least to feel the peace. Like medicine, hard work, religiousness, marriage, theology, selfishness, worry, lying. What other, other people think of you? Some of these things are good. Again, they're good. But they become idols when we put our hope in them instead of God. 
or we don't recognize that they are God's gifts to us. He can take them away and he can give them. But God is still good. God is still wise and God still loves me. He would never do those things, take those things away, including my life. If it wasn't for his glory and if it wasn't for our eternal life, eternal good. But God, Jonathan spoke about those, those words that we, um, we see in Ephesians, but God, they're, they're great to see because they show us that something different is going to happen. God graciously puts thorns in the wilderness, of the wilderness into our paths, and we are forced to look to him. And with Gomer and the prodigal son, we say, I will return. And we cry out, Lord, help me give up trusting in this weak thing. And, put, and help me put my full weight, the full weight of my trust, the full weight of my faith on your goodness, your wisdom, and your love. In verses 14 and 15, God declares, I mean, this, I remember when we were, uh, I kind of saw this for the first time. Uh, we were in a marriage class with Gerald and Susan um, last year, maybe. And um, it just really stuck out to me, these, these two verses. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into a wilderness. Is that where you want to be allured to? A wilderness? I will speak and speak tenderly to her. And I will give her vineyards and make the valley of, of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth. At, at, the, at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So listen to God's love for his people. Even though he has wed us to Christ, we had been harlots. And now we're even kind of trusting in our money, our ideals, our hard work, and our anxieties. God has powerfully rescued us and wed us to Christ. But we continue to return. Despite these times of faithlessness, God allures us back to himself and into a wilderness. Now, why would he lure us into a wilderness and then provide for us? Well, you didn't pick the fruit or get the provision from the tree that's in the wilderness because it's a wilderness, right? But think about that word allure. God allures us. Now, when we are first in love with uh, uh, the man or the woman that we're going to marry. You know that, that wooing we do, that love we do. And then it, it hopefully continues on in our, in our relationship. That word allure can also be used to talk about seduce, seduction. But this is not an immoral thing because he's speaking of marriage. I'm alluring you back. I'm bringing you back to me. We are Christ's bride, and the picture we see here for the Christian is, even in God's judgment in our ongoing sin, God responds to us tenderly, come back to me, trust in me. You can obey me and follow me even in the scariest places, 
and you will be safe. You will suffer. You may suffer the temporary discomfort of the situation. Again, here's a but. It's a big but. I am helping you see my goodness, my faithfulness, and my wisdom, and my love, and I am transforming you. I'm giving strength. I'm working out your truster muscle, so you will trust me. At the end of this chapter, as we move on from here to the end of the chapter, God foreshadows the completion of fixing our truster muscles. And this is why I think us remembering glorification is important, is really important for our emotional health, our mental health, and for our walk with Christ. And I'm going to start with uh, the last part of verse 15. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of Egypt. So you can kind of look at maybe um, that coming out of Egypt, God bringing the Hebrew people out of Egypt as their wedding. You know, they went through the Red Sea and, and, and they were wed to Christ, wed to God. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer call me my, my Baal. I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by, no, by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and, the, and war from their land, and I will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will make mercy. I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So if you think about this, if you look at these words, she shall answer in the day of her youth. I think this points back to the time before she was a harlot. You know, um, she was not attached to that, that lifestyle. Maybe we can look at it like um, the uncleanness of, of that. She'll be like that when God's finished with her. So, so you see what what's saying is, do you think sin, even our nominal sins, do you think they scar us? Do you think they um, change our lives or make us feel bad about ourselves or seem bad uh, by other people? And do we ever worry, well, I know I'm saved, but I can never overcome so-and-so. 
What God is saying here is that he has saved us from our rebellion and he works in us over time to transfer our trust fully to him from the feeble things of this world to his goodness, his wisdom and his love. And in the end, all things have been said and done. And when they're all said and done and we're finally glorified and standing before God in a new and better garden of recreated heaven and earth, it will be like we had never prostituted ourselves to the vain things of this world. Not only from God's perspective and through the work of Christ, as he looks at us, he sees us righteous in Christ now, but in our own hearts, we're going to fully trust God. We're not going to have distraction. We're not going to have a competitor. So my money, my finances aren't going to be a competitor to God anymore. I won't be tempted to think about um, if I do everything right, God's going to love me or my life is going to be good. I'm just going to trust in God. And that's what God is after in our lives. We come into the into the kingdom, right? We come into the kingdom and it's like we've been living uh, our whole lives on a frozen pond. And, you know, sometimes if we get over in a certain area, we hear cracks and we've seen friends fall through and drown. Right. But this is what we know. And we're going to stand on it. And we see this green stuff out there. Oh, well, that green stuff I might cut our feet. Or what are those? What's those big round things over there that look hard? I could I could stub my toe on that. Or those big, tall things with the green stuff on top. What if they fell on me? I'm going to stay right here where I am. What I know, I'm safe. But when we, we come to Christ, he takes us and puts us on the land, right? And we're still afraid of those rocks. Maybe we get to the grass and we're trying, oh yeah, well this is, this is kind of nice. There's no give. Uh, the grass is not cutting my feet. We go past the boulders around us or the mountains And we realize that they're not going to fall on us. The trees aren't going to fall on us. And as we go, we're maturing in our trust of God in the the way he wants us uh, to live. And so that's what God does to us, with us, in us, as we come to faith, as we go through the times where he shows us through incompleteness or uh, suffering or um, afflictions or broken relationships He shows us that he is the only place that we need to trust, the only one we need to trust. And he transforms our lives. And I'm not, again, don't think I'm saying we should rejoice like, oh, bring me some more suffering. That's not what I'm saying. I want us to to be, again, this is not the whole of our thinking of suffering, and it's only one aspect of the gospel. But what I have found, the reason why I see that we need, each of us as individuals, a robust theology of suffering, I see it as the key to my, one of the keys to my counseling ministry is that it demonstrates the faithfulness and promise of God's love for his people with the understanding that we can endure suffering because we know it's God's work to transform our lives. You know, back when uh, he said uh, 
he mentioned um, going into the valley of Achor. Do you remember the story about the guy who in Jericho stole the, you know, he hid the stuff under his tent? Achan? Not Danny Achan, but Achan. Um, and then they, you know, they, they uh, stoned him and his family. So even, I think that what he's saying is, even if I have to cut off an important part of your life to grow you in Christ, that's more important. So we can endure affliction and discomfort because one day we're going to stand before God. It's not, um, if, we, if we think back to uh, what God said in this very end, he didn't say, I may do so and so for his people. Did he? He said, I will. I will answer their prayers. I will be their God. I will have mercy on them. And I will, they will be my people. So it's a sure thing. So if you're going through something today, it feels like the end of the world. Sometimes when when I was going through my uh, time of... uh, Anxiety. I was like, man, this is, I'm going to be like this forever. And that just sounded, I mean, it was, it was terrible feeling. It felt like who would want to live their life like that? But we know that it's only temporary. These things are only temporary because God is going to put us before him. And there's no sin is going to be before you and, between you and God when you're in heaven, right? When you are glorified, you're not going to want to do things that you that would hurt you or dishonor God. You're going to just be enjoying him and worshiping him and serving him. And partaking in the full benefits of his love and being complete. And flawless bearers of his image. So the Apostle John gives us a little picture. In Revelation chapter 21, 1 through 7. I encourage you to read Revelation to see what heaven's going to be like or what the new heaven and new earth are going to be like. Not just for the, the prophetic, you know, the, the exciting stuff. Um, this, should, this, this can be more exciting because it speaks of what is going to be. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more, and I, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, preparing his bride, pre- prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and he and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, and this is, should be, uh, memorize this one sentence about uh, our future. Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for the words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, 
It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son or my son or daughter. So since God is wise and he loves his people and he's good and his plans for our lives can be trusted as flawless, what should we do? Well, I think the first thing uh, is that if you've never trusted Christ, hear this love that God has for his people. I plead with you to put your hope in Jesus. He took on human flesh. He lived a sinless life. He died a physical death. He took the just wrath of God in our place, and God raised him physically and historically from the dead. Call on him today. Save me, O Lord, is the sinner's prayer. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, I I plead with you to purposefully notice in Scripture, in church history, in your own life, in the life of other peoples, the people in your life, the wilderness paradox plot lines, to see how God transforms people's lives. Number two, I also ask you, don't seek suffering. But don't refuse to go in the direction of suffering if that is where obeying God takes you. And then third, a warning. Scripture also demonstrates that we can respond to our suffering in a way that does not yield maturity in faith. So ask God for his help. Empower me, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to learn to grow as a man or woman of God through this thing that's happening to me. Yes, relieve me of the stress, the strain, the hurt, but change me and make me more like Christ. Let's pray. Father God, you are altogether good. Your wisdom knows no bounds. You have demonstrated the the earnestness of your love by giving us your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. All you do and all you have planned is trustworthy. Help us mature in trusting you more fully in every part of our lives. When we walk through this valley of death, help us place our fears on you. Help us also be patient with one another, for we are all growing and trusting and may in trusting and may be at different places in our sanctification. Help us also as a church family mature in our corporate trust. Use us to reach the lost. Let us see people come to Christ for salvation and to see, and see each other grow in our faith. Amen.